God, speak to us now through Christ. Amen. Well, uh, there's an old saying, great minds think alike, and I'm not sure if that includes myself and Alan, but he opened up with my opening. When I say the word worship, I do wonder about what you're thinking about. When you hear worship, now for some of you, knee-jerk reaction, you hear worship, you think music. You think about the great hymns of days gone by, praise choruses that have become popular. Some of you, when you hear the word worship, may think about prayer and an important part that it plays in the worship. Some of you may think about the scripture readings that we'll hear as the word of God is opened. And then perhaps some of you are thinking about the sermon. Now, unfortunately, I know what some people think about when they hear worship. I know it all too well. Some people, folks, think about a good nap. A good nap. It's worship time. Let's kick back. I shared with some of you a couple weeks ago, my very first church, I was 19 when I took it, 20 when I became the pastor, Miss Opal, I was her pastor for almost three years. She never heard a complete sermon. Like clockwork, 10 to 15 minutes into the sermon, she was out. And one day, this little lady who already owned my heart because she was four foot 11, the same size as my grandma, shook my hand on her way out and said, Brother Danny, I don't want you to think I'm bored. It's just when I hear such good preaching, it relaxes me so much. So if you've ever thought of using that excuse, you can't now. When I was young, I kind of got offended when people fell asleep with me. And then, because I was rather young when I started, but then I I read in the book of Acts that Paul the Apostle, during a very lengthy sermon, put one Eutychus, a young man, to sleep. And I thought, if it's good enough for Paul then I can deal with that. Now, seriously, more than a few people think of worship as boring, and that's a shame, my friends. Because the reality, some of the people who find worship boring are not not just outsiders looking in. I know people who get bored with singing hymns. And there's a contingency in the modern church that says we ought to scrap them all. Folks, I think that would be one of the greatest mistakes we could ever make. There are songs that have stood the test of centuries that we should use to worship God. I know some people who get rather upset and impatient when too many praise songs are sung. And I've had personally friends who would be very offended at our congregational worship here in Bay Vista because... We have a drum, bongos, and we have a bass guitar. And those newfangled things shouldn't be used in worship. Although I will point out that the psalmist said play with strings, instruments, and mention percussion. And yes, even though these many years later, I've still been known to help somebody get to slumberland. 
I believe that worship must become more than entertainment. Worship has got to be very much more than a weekly pep rally for Jesus. It's got to be much more than what Vance Havner, one of my favorite all-time Southern Baptist preachers, once said, that many congregations begin their worship at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dull. It's got to be more than that. I believe it's crucial because without worship, you and I cannot be what we are called to be. Everything we do is contingent on us having an ongoing encounter with the Lord, both on a personal level in private worship and in corporate as we come together in the body of Christ. And over the last few months, we've been looking at America's church in need of awakening. We desperately need an awakening of God in our land. And one sign that awakening is weakened is when worship no longer has control, no longer grabs hold of our hearts and moves us. But worship can be a very different sign. It can actually be a sign that maybe, just maybe, awakening is around the bend or perhaps has already come. And that sign is when suddenly God's people begin brand new, a delight in worship, actually falling in love with coming together. And we're going to look at that from the perspective of Isaiah chapter 12 today. This ends the passages in Isaiah from chapter 1 to 12 that are sometimes referred to as first Isaiah, his first message. It is also known as the Emmanuel song. And chapters 2 through 11 are primarily about Judah being judged. Not a particularly winsome story. But chapter 12 introduces us to something amazing. Because God is going to tell his people, not only is judgment coming, but there will come a day when I am going to restore my fallen people. So let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And I want you to hear with both ears, hear with your heart what God has got to say to his people because it is absolutely amazing. Now keep in mind, Isaiah has been preaching, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And then he says, In that day, you will say, I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. And proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. 
Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Such a powerful statement. And by that way, that the, the Holy One of Israel is Isaiah's favorite expression for the Lord God Almighty. He's with you. And Isaiah prophesied that God's people would one day be filled with praise after God brought them to deliverance. After he brings them home from captivity, the people of God are going to exult in praise. They're going to be so filled with worship and adoration. And I believe that right now, in our land, we desperately need a restoration in our lives as the church as a whole and in our individual lives, a restoration that will lead us to unbridled praise and worship where we freely adore the Lord our God in in an amazing way. So how is that going to happen? How will we come back to the idea that we delight in worship, that we are excited about the concept of coming together among the people of God to worship him. Well, as we look at our text, we're going to discover several characteristics of worship that happens when God has renewed his people. May they be characteristics of our worship from this day forward. And the very first thing we look at Delightful worship is marked by gratitude. Gratitude. Now, not the kind of thank you your mama made you tell your aunt when she gave you that awfully ugly Christmas sweater. Not the kind of thank you that you were told when when it's expected the social nicety. Gratitude that reaches down deep into our lives. When you look at what God is telling his people, God said that the praise would flow when he forgave his people. Now, in that day, the expression shows up a couple of times. In that day refers to a future time somewhere out in Israel, somewhere out in Judah's history, when God is going to restore them, is going to make them whole, is going to fill them with all of the blessings of Messiah himself. And at that point in time, individuals and the body are going to stand up and say, I will thank the Lord. I will praise God because of all the things he's done for me. Praise is essentially, it has been pointed out, a thankful confession that gives honor to God. And the word of praise does recognize in this beautiful little hymn that God will be angry with sin. But then it holds out the hope that at some point God turns away his anger. At some point God fills his people with grace and will take away everything that would seek to destroy them. And it's appropriate. Israel will come to know, Judah will come to know, that when God rescues us, it will be because of grace. It's very clear in the first 11 chapters, Judah needed judgment. Judah deserved judgment. 
without question. But now, God says, my people will understand I am the source of their salvation. I am the one that will deliver them. I am the one that will set them free. So there comes a point in time when God has moved among his people out of sheer joy, sheer gratitude. They sing praises to God for all that he's done. And I believe with everything in me, lives touched deeply by God's grace cannot help but praise him. If you've really been touched by God and you know that, you can't stop. Now, let's face it, the world doesn't like the concept of grace at all. It doesn't want to accept the idea of grace. It demands we're going to earn our own way. World religions across this planet talk about the way we earn our right with God. Secular philosophies don't talk about God, but they'll say we will become a better people when we try really hard because we don't want to have to deal with what it means to accept God's grace. Jeff Jacoby wrote an article for the Boston Globe, The Power of Giving Thanks. And he said, "In, in a sense, gratitude is an expression of modesty. And he points out the Hebrew word for gratitude, for thanks, one of those words is actually the same word that is used to translate, is translated as confession. So thanksgiving is confessing. We need you, God. Thanksgiving is confession. We can't do this on our own. We are dependent upon you. And Thanksgiving in general, Jacoby points out, when we show gratitude to somebody, we are saying, you have made an impact in my life. You have changed me. You have made me a better person having known you. Well, folks, God Almighty is the one who ultimately has touched our lives in ways we could not have imagined on our own. And we are ready when God touches us to do what the world is not. We're ready to humble ourselves. And when God touches us, we're ready to say, Lord, I couldn't be here without you. I couldn't become what you want me to be. The grace of God, when John Newton wrote it, was an amazing grace. He was absolutely correct. So let's go through our mind. Let's rehearse what God has done. Let's think about all he's done for us. Let us remember all that God has done, that we might truly praise him. Think about it. The salvation that he's brought to you in the name of Christ. The abundant life that is so much more than just mere existence. The hope that is ours because of what the Lord has done. And when we start thinking about those things, and I'm not saying occasionally, and I'm not saying on Sunday alone, throughout our lives as we remember what God has done, our hearts were going to be ready to be thankful. And so when we do gather together, I won't have to give a pep rally about gratitude. Your lives will be filled with a gratitude for God Almighty. This is such a powerful sense 
of what God has done. But there's more than just gratitude here. Because we learn from Isaiah, a delightful worship is marked by trust. Marked by trust. The people of Judah, before they get to the place of praising God with full worship, they're going to have a struggle. They're going to have a difficulty. They will look at the Babylonian captivity as God's failure for his people. That God has turned away and no longer cares. But Isaiah lets us know that the people of God would one day realize that he had delivered them. One day God's people will rejoice in the fact that the Lord God Almighty did not forget us. Eric Erickson was a noted American psychologist who talked a lot about the concept of basic trust. And that basic trust, he says, begins with a baby. When bit by bit, baby learns that this, this thing that picks it up and feeds it and changes us, he will later learn or she will later learn to call her mama. The baby comes to a place of realizing that mama's here. And mama cares about me. And mama will take care of me. And Erickson says it's that basic trust that begins in a baby's life that brings people to the place of having trust that the world can be not so horribly a frightening place. Now you may disagree with that in terms of the world, but folks, the people of God understood something. They had a primary, elemental trust in Yahweh. They would come to understand, even when everything cried out, we're goners, God doesn't care, they would learn to trust. Yahweh loves us. Yahweh will stay faithful to his covenant. He will move in us. He will change us. He will bring us to what we can be. You see, Israel understood to be fully human was to trust in the Lord. Even when things look like maybe you shouldn't. When God gave his purpose, when God would give his purpose to this falling people, he was telling them, you can trust me. You can trust me. And they would affirm in trust, the Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my strength. I trust him. And I believe he is here to minister and give us life. One day, they would be able to look forward to the promise of God's deliverance and know that one day God would prove he's trustworthy. Well, folks, God's act of salvation merits our highest trust and praise. The reality is God moved to save you, God moved to save me when we least deserved it. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to do a good job. He looked at us, and the Scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
He brought into our lives the possibility of abundant life. He brought into our lives hope and grace. And even as his people, when we stray, when we lose sight of him, when we are in need of an awakening, like Adam in the Garden of Eden, when he tried to hide from God, God came looking for him. God cried out, Adam, where are you? Not because Adam was a good hider. God wanted Adam to know there's something wrong here, and it is in you. God comes looking for us. And as crazy as this world is, as chaotic, as scary, as frightening, in the midst of struggle, we can know that God is worthy of our trust. Leland Patrick, in a sermon, The Finder of Fruits of Love, talked about a situation that he had gone through. He had gone with a group of people, of men, to Northport, a place where there was an obstacle course. It was a ropes course. Some of you have been in ropes courses. And the purpose of this trip was to build camaraderie and trust and commitment to one another. And so he said the worst part of this course for him was the trust platform. I don't know that I trust people this much. You climb up on a platform that is five to six feet in height. Once you get there, you turn your back at the edge of the platform, you cross your arms, and you fall back into the waiting arms of your people. And he said that required a lot of trust. But he also said it's that kind of trust that makes relationships possible. When you come to trust a person, when you come to trust your loved one, you're saying that I'm willing to put my life in your hands. And folks, God Almighty is the most trustworthy of all. And you and I, in the moment of struggle and pain and fear, can launch ourselves out into the arms of God. And our worship suddenly comes powerfully real because we know no matter what, God will catch us. No matter what, he will be with us. And even that's not all. And here's where I'm about to start meddling. Folks, delightful worship is marked by enthusiastic joy. Enthusiastic joy. When we have been touched by God, awakened by God, and we are worshiping Him, joy becomes a hallmark of all that means. Enthusiastic joy. See, God's deeds for His people are worthy of exuberant shouts of joy. Every once in a while, I like to pull one of those old words out. Exuberant is a wonderful word that talks about just unbridled, excited, wonderfully affirming joy. 
That's what God wants from us. You see, God declared that Israel's joy would be demonstrated by shouts and singing. And the word shout here doesn't mean amen under your breath. It is a shout out loud, God be praised, God is wonderful, God is amazing, and singing. Singing praise and thanksgiving is so fitting. Folks, throughout the century, people have understood the power of worship and music. Walter Savage Landor said, Music is God's gift to man, the only part of heaven given to earth, the only part of earth we take to heaven. I like that. There's a lot of things we do here we're not going to be doing. And so you need to get used to singing, folks. Because that's a strong part of what we will be doing in glory. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, not just being a theologically amazing guy, was a lover of music, wrote one of my favorite hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He said, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. Beautiful music is the art of the prophets that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presence God has given us. So why would the people of God brought back from captivity, brought back in deliverance, why would they not use music as expressions of joy? Their lives would be restored by God. He was going to make them whole. And it's been pointed out, when God touches and God renews us, a new attitude takes over our hearts. We will tell everyone about our joy. We will sing about the holy God. And that ought to be the experience of every child. Every person who can say the Lord is my salvation should be a people of joy. Joyless Christianity just doesn't make sense. And again, I contend... It is impossible to be truly grounded in the saving touch of God and remained untouched by worship's joy. If you don't know joy in worship, you don't really understand what God has done for you. Now, those of you who know me well will understand, uh, Dick Clark, American bandstand Dick Clark, made a statement about music that resonates with my entire life. He said, music is the soundtrack of your life. And those of you who know me well enough, you will know every major event in my life, every major time period of my life is filled with music. And there are events that happen to me. I can tell you the music that was going on when it happened. It's powerful. It's moving. It's wonderful. But the single most important moment in my life, and if you know Christ in yours, was the moment we were touched by the grace of God. The moment that God gave us a cause to sing the most important songs of our life. Songs about his grace, songs about his love, songs about the life that can be ours in Christ. This is the soundtrack that should thrill our hearts. This should be at the basic 
of our, our worship. Joy because God has touched us. God has moved upon us. And here's where I start. Here's the point I specifically am going to meddle with you now. Let us throw pride aside and allow ourselves to erupt in truly joyful praise. Did you know there was a time in Baptist life when congregations were really loud? Some of you may remember, I remember in my home church where I surrendered to preach, 15, I remember our amen corner. And it was primarily led by John Dunn. Brother John, if the preacher shouted, he said amen. Sometimes it probably should not have been amen, which means so be it. Sometimes the preacher was making a tough point. But amens were heard, and you'd go back even further. Folks sang with gusto. Folks praised God. It would not be unusual in a Baptist church to hear somebody say, preach it. And I will tell you, saying that to a preacher is like saying, sick him to a dog. It just, oh, yes, I'm ready to go. But through the years, we've become too focused on what people might think. We don't want to be linked, you know, to those fanatic people. In the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel, David is returning to Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told he dressed himself up in an ephod, a garment of praise, and started dancing crazily before the Lord. In verse 16, we hear his wife's response. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And in verse 20, she lets him know what she thinks. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael said, daughter Saul came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. It is before the Lord I will celebrate before God the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. David said, I'm not worried about what you think. And my praise and my joy before God is not going to be hampered by your distaste. I am going to praise and worship the Lord. And so, as we focus on the God who saves and sustains us, our hearts should be leaping with joy. So let's not worry what people think. Let's sing and even shout before the Lord. I still remember at the age of 15, Brother David Blaze preaching his heart out. And I'm, I was getting so caught up. 
I wanted to say something, but amen didn't mean anything to my 15-year-old mind. What I wanted to cry out was, right on! Which tells you my generation. And I sat there and said nothing because I was afraid of what the people would think. Folks, let's sing. And if God so leads, let's shout for joy. But may this be a place where we can worship God freely. We can experience our joy, the excitement that God brings because he touched me. He changed me. And I now have a reason for joy. And yet, it's still not all. The final thing Isaiah lets us know is that delightful worship is marked by desire for others to know the Lord. Marked by a desire for other people to come and know Yahweh, the Lord, our God. You see, God had to tell them what was going to happen. He had to make it clear to them. I've touched you. I've moved on you. And I've, I've marked your lives as mine. And so he gave them one last word. God explained that a restored people of God would essentially be gripped by a worship that would be shared. In that day, in that day, you're going to move. He's telling them their singing, their praise was not going to be limited to the temple and it's not going to be limited into their own nation. That praise is going to move the remnant of the Lord and that word, that pronoun I, and throughout this text represents the remnant of God who has come back to him. The remnant will one day thank the Lord and will call each other to let the world know what God has done. That is so far away from the way Israel normally thought. We're the chosen of God. The rest of you are just not going to make it. But God's name, we're told here, was going to be exalted before the world. People everywhere will come to the place of realizing that the God of Israel keeps his word. And people were going to sing because of his glorious works. And folks, this was the plan of God for Israel from the beginning. From the very beginning, in the 12th chapter of Genesis, when God calls out Abram, we're told in verses 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abram, had said to Abram, go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. See, God called out Israel so that they would have a testimony in the nation that they would be able to tell the world that Yahweh is God Almighty. He alone is God. And they were going to testify in a way they had not before. 
We want others to know the truth about our God. You see, folks, being touched by the hand of the Lord changes you. It changes you. If you've ever allowed yourself to think, even for a moment, I've got my ticket punched to heaven, that's all that matters, I'm just going to coast and not say anything, I'm not going to draw attention, I'm not going to rock the boat, I'm just going to play it safe. Folks, when you realize what God has done in your life, you can't have that mentality. It can't be just about you. It can't be just about me. When we have fully embraced the salvation of the Lord God Almighty, we now have a new purpose, a new motivation for life. And when the grace of God washes over our souls, we're not going to be satisfied with the praise that exists only in the safety of these four walls. It's going to mark our lives. It's going to mark our relationships. We will want this world to know what we have come to know. God is worthy. Worthy of our trust, worthy of our commitment, worthy of our lives. Our worship will flow out of our hearts, out of our lives, into a world. And we can set our hearts on praising God before a world that desperately needs to know him. Now, knowing that it's going to ruffle feathers, knowing that not everybody is going to receive what we have to say, why would we risk sharing our praise with the world? Why am I going to tell people God is real and he's touched me when I know so many will say, no, he's not? C.S. Lewis battled with this. And in a wonderful little book, Reflections on the Psalms, he talks about one of, the, one of his biggest struggles when he became a believer was all of this stuff in the Word of God that said God demanded praise. And he expressed what I see a lot of people say, a lot of folks without faith saying today, that God must be a narcissist. He must be egotistical. He demands praise. And then Lewis made a discovery. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone about him. How good he is. It's frustrating to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. Some of you will really like this one. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify God, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. Why would we share? Because we've been touched by God Almighty. 
He has saved us. He's redeemed us. He's loved us with a perfect love. And to fully appreciate that, we got to tell. One of the strangest passages of Scripture after the raising of Jairus' daughter, Jesus looked at Jairus and said, don't tell anybody. Can you imagine how hard that was? How can I not tell what God has done? Well, folks, we are called to tell. And as God moves in us, we can sing out to a world that doesn't particularly want to hear But that praise may be the key of touching someone's heart for the Lord. Perhaps one of the greatest loved hymns of all times is How Great Thou Art. It's been translated into many, many languages. Folks, right after it was written, it was. And it's a beautiful song. It traces back to a Swedish pastor Carl Boberg, about 1886. He was a leading evangelist of his day, edited in a major Lutheran periodical in Sweden. He served on the Swedish parliament, published a lot of poems and several hymns. The inspiration is said he was outside on the southeastern coast of Sweden when a very strong, scary storm blew in. And it was a violent storm, one of those kind you're really wishing you were inside somewhere. But then the violence of the storm stopped, and it was followed by the return of the the sun and birds singing. And as he watched all of this take place, he was so overwhelmed, he fell to his knees in awe. And from that experience, he penned the first nine stanzas of the song translated in English that began, Oh God, when I look at the world. He was surprised, even though he published it as a poem, years later, sitting in a congregation, he hears his poem sung to the tune of an old Swedish folk melody. When you and I think about God, when we open our hearts to what God has done, how can we do anything less but delight in worshiping Him? It will change us. It will move us. It will revitalize us. It will give us hope. So, today, Delighting in worship, well, to do that, we've got to let our hearts be filled with gratitude. We need to let our minds be filled with a a primal trust that God is good and God is grace. We've got to come to the place of saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to react with the joy that I should. An unrestrained joy because of all that you've done for me. My worship will take on a new heart. 
And when we do, God's praise will spill out of our lives to the world around us. So today, I'm asking you, I'm asking us to return to a glory-filled worship of our incredible God. I'm asking you to speak to the Lord right now and ask Him to fill your hearts. Begin to, every time you've come together to worship, to fill you with a sense of rich and meaningful worship. Bow your heads before the Lord now. And let Him open up your heart to to fill you with everything He's done so that from this day forward, our worship will become more and more an increasingly delightful thing. So it no longer is it's time we got to go to church. We'll be saying it's time we get to go.